Welcome to the Norse Files, the podcast about the Norwegian Middle Ages, arranged by the Transformations of Medieval Law Project, funded by the Trondmon Foundation and the University of Bergen. I'm your host, Patrick Frugia. The End of the Conflict Between the Bagler and the Birkebeiner In the last episode, we chronicled how King Sverre Sigurdsson, the alleged son of the Norwegian king Sigurd the Crusader, took the throne of Norway and managed to control it for the longest period since before the civil wars. You might also remember that King Sverre was a controversial figure who opposed the aristocracy and the church. He spent most of his reign fighting against the Danish-supported faction known as the Bagler, the archbishops of Nidaros, a faction supported by the Arcadian earls, and even the Pope. He even managed to place the Kingdom of Norway under a papal ban for several years because of his actions. But no one can live forever, and by 1202, King Sverre's life was coming to an end. On his deathbed, King Sverre told his supporters that he had only one living son, one of the leaders of the Birkebeiner faction named Håkon. We don't know much about his origins, only that he was born on the Faroes, where his father lived until he found out about his claim to the Norwegian throne, and that he was most likely born around 1170. The Norwegian historian P.A. Munch hypothesized that his mother could have been the daughter of the Faroese Bishop Rua, Astrid, but later historians have not supported this claim. By that time, Håkon had been fighting against the Bagler alongside his father for some years, and he managed to get elected as the leader of the Birkebeiner after his father's death. Håkon would later go to the Ørething and get the acclamation of the assembly as the legitimate king. He immediately set in motion a reconciliation with the church, offering a settlement to the bishops in exile, and rapidly moving toward a lift of the papal ban on Norway. This reconciliation brought a time of peace and popularity for Håkon, leaving the Bagler faction without a base of support. But what was set to be a successful reign fell to pieces even before it could take off. The problems came, this time, from within the inner circle of the Birkebeiner faction. King Sverre had been married with Margaret Eriksdottir, the daughter of the Swedish king. Sverre and Margaret had a daughter, Kristin, who lived at the Norwegian court with her half-brother and mother. Queen Margaret was not happy in Norway and wanted to go back to Sweden with her daughter. King Håkon offered Margaret freedom to leave, but only if Kristin remained in Norway with him. Margaret reluctantly left Norway and went back to her estates in Västerjötland, and the bitterness between her and Håkon intensified. In 1204, Margaret returned to Norway, and a few days later, King Håkon died. Rumors spread like wildfire, and Margaret ended up being accused of poisoning the king. She had to go through an ordeal by fire, in which she was found guilty of killing the king, and had to flee back to Sweden. The succession to the throne was open again, as Håkon did not have any known descendants by then, the crown went to Guttorm, the four-year-old son of his half-brother Sigurd Lavard. Given his young age, the regency of Guttorm fell in the hands of the leader of the Birkebeiner, Jarl Håkon Galen, the son of King Sverre's half-sister Cecilia, and the Swedish lawman Folkvid. The death of King Guttorm did not compromise the Birkebeiner's control of the crown. 
Considering Guthorm was only four years old when he ascended to the throne, royal power was in the hands of Håkon Galen anyway, who appeared to be the undisputed candidate for the throne. However, things were not going to be as simple as that. When the Birkebeiner elected Håkon as their leader and presented his candidacy at the Erting, they were opposed by Archbishop Nikolaus and the assembly, that apparently brought up his Swedish origins to discredit him. In a pragmatic turn of events, the crown was offered to Inge Bordson, Håkon's half-brother. Håkon's mother annulled her marriage with Folkvid and married Bård Gutomson, a Birkebeiner leader with whom she begat Inge. King Inge agreed to share half of the royal revenues with his half-brother Håkon, who was an earl after all. While the Birkebeiner were resolving the succession to the throne, the Bogler were rallying their forces in Denmark. They were supported by the Danish king Valdemar II, who wanted to regain control over the region of Viken, in southeastern Norway. After the many revolts against King Sverre that we have already discussed, the Bogler united behind a new candidate, the alleged son of King Magnus Erlingsson, as Inge Magnusson before, named Erling Steinweg. Apparently, he had been held captive in Sweden by King Knut Eriksson, allied with the Birkebeiner, and escaped to Denmark. There, he underwent an ordeal in front of King Valdemar II that proved he was the rightful heir of Magnus Erlingsson. In support of Erling's claim, the Danish king moved a fleet to Viken and gained control of the area, after which he went with Erling to Tunsberg, where the son of King Magnus was named king. In the year 1204, then, Norway would have four kings, Håkon Sverreson, Guttorm Sigurdsson, Inge Bordson, and Erling Magnusson. Only kings Inge and Erling would be fighting in the following years to rule the whole kingdom, the former controlling the Trøndelag region, the latter controlling Viken, while western Norway, where Bergen stands, would change hands several times. In 1207, Erling Steinweg died, leaving two infant sons behind. Instead of supporting the sons of Erling, the Bogler rallied around Philippus Simonsson, a Norwegian aristocrat whose family had been opposed to the Birkebeiner during the revolt of the Kuvlungs, and who also acted as Erling's earl. Philippus' mother Margaret was the half-sister of King Inge Crouchback and the sister of the Bishop of Oslo, Nicholas Arnason, who organized the Bogler party against Sverre and that wanted his nephew to become king. Philippus' reign began on the right foot, taking the fortress of Sverresborg, one of the Birkebeiner strongholds, in 1207. However, the supporters of King Inge were fast to reciprocate, raiding the Bogler base of support in Tunsberg. The situation eventually came to a stalemate. Neither the Birkebeiner nor the Bogler could manage to control enough of the country to defeat the other faction. Thus, the following year, Nicolas Arnason rallied the other bishops and brokered a peace between the factions that was ratified in Kvitsoy, where King Inge recognized Philippus' rule over a third of the country in exchange of the Bogler recognizing Inge as the rightful king of Norway. This understanding lasted while King Inge lived. As part of the deal, Philippus married the daughter of King Sverre Sigurdsson and Margaret, Christine Sverresdottir. They had a son that died shortly after his mother, leaving Philip without a descendant. In 1217, the king died and Philippus felt that it was his time to renegotiate the settlement with the Birkebeiner. Unfortunately for him, he died later that year, and by that time there was another candidate for the throne, whose story is the center of today's episode, the young Håkon Håkonsson. 
the young King Håkon. As mentioned previously, in 1204 when King Håkon Sverreson died, he left no known heir. A few months after his death, however, a woman called Inge Vartag, known to be the king's mistress, gave birth to a boy. She claimed that the boy was the son of the king, and most of the supporters and closer allies of Håkon supported her claim. As you can imagine by now, it was not as simple as being recognized as the heir to the throne, and especially in the case of a minor king, her claim put baby Håkon in danger. Håkon Håkonsson was born in Viken, in southeastern Norway, a region controlled by the Bogler. This presented the Danish-supported faction with the possibility of landing a huge blow to the Birkebeiner by seizing a strong candidate to the throne. For the Birkebeiner, bringing the infant king to safety was what we would consider today a commando operation. They had to move deep into enemy territory, extract the baby, and get back to Birkebeiner-controlled territory with the Bogler forces chasing them. This epic story gives us one of the more cinematographic scenes in Norwegian history, and it has already been adapted in movies, the latest in 2016 with Christopher Hivu, paintings, and in many other ways. Further emphasizing the echo that this event caused, there is an annual cross-country ski marathon celebrating the escape of the Birkemeiner that runs from Rena to Lillehammer, covering 54 kilometers. And even the coat of arms of Lillehammer presents a Birkebeiner skiing down a mountain with a spear in his hands. So if you are interested in Norwegian history, the escape of baby Håkon from Viken is probably something you are familiar with, whether or not you know the details. There is a very famous painting by Knud Bergslien that is now located in the Holmenkollen Ski Museum in Oslo. It depicts two men sliding down a mountain on their skis, one carrying a spear in his hands, a bow and arrows on his back, while the other is carrying a shield and an axe. Both look like experienced warriors, and they are fully clad in armor, as if they are expecting a fight and not a race through the forest. Their gear does not look particularly fit for going through rough terrain, and certainly not for the bad weather conditions in snowy eastern Norway. The man with the axe holds, between his chest and his shield, a small blonde child, protecting him from the hardships of the trip. The boy appears to be absent from the scene, with his gaze looking outside the painting, or as we might say now, breaking the fourth wall. Bergslian plays with the chromatic contrast between the light emerging from the boy's face and that of the warriors, whose skin looked hardened by a life in the battlefields. There is also another interesting opposition that highlights the majesty of Baby Håkon. There is tension in the faces of the warriors, with their eyes wide open, looking forward and with grim expressions. In contrast, Håkon's calmness seems to be expressing his wisdom or foresight, as if he knew that he was destined to become the longest reigning king of Norway since Harald Fairhair. Or as if he had read his own saga, of which we will be talking about in what follows. For now, keep the image of the fragile boy crossing the forest of eastern Norway escaping from his mortal enemies. We do not have many sources about the early years of Håkon's life, and most of what we know comes from Håkona saga Håkonasonar, the saga written by the Icelandic skald and lawman, Sturla Thorason, at the commission of King Magnus Håkonsson. The escape of King Håkon took place in 1206. He was brought to the court of King Ingeborgson, who was nonetheless unable to keep the boys safe for long. When Håkon was three years old, King Inge and Erl Håkon Galen went around the country fighting the Bogler while young King Håkon stayed in Bergen. A band of Bogler attacked Bergen, 
where Hokon was, and captured the boy king. The saga of King Hokon tells the story of how the young king, when taken to meet the leaders of the enemy forces, refused to recognize Philippus Simonson as his lord. After the intercession of the bishop, and with news of the arrival of Earl Hokon in the city, the Bogler released King Hokon unharmed. Hokonar saga Hokonasonar tells of an interesting debate between the Bogler, where Hreidar, one of their leaders, suggests that they take King Hokon as their king, instead of following Philippus Simonson. The rationale behind this move would be to show that they knew that Hokon's claim for the throne had more legitimacy than that of the kings of the Birka Minor and Bogler had, as Hokon descended from a king. As we have said before, King Inge and his half-brother Hokon had their own plan for the royal succession. In 1208, the brothers made public their intention to shun Hokon's claim at the Erdeting. At the assembly, Hokon Galen and Inge got the archbishop and all the bishops to subscribe to an agreement confirming that whichever brother survived the other should inherit the whole of Norway. King Hokon learned of this from one of his bodyguards, to whom he replied that the brothers' schemes were invalid, as his representatives, God and St. Olaf, were not present at the assembly. Despite the disagreement, Hokon grew up in the court of his namesake in Bergen until 1214, when Hokon Galen died. In 1211, King Hokon started his education at the court, education which he continued to receive after Hokon died in the court of King Inge. When he moved to Trondheim, he grew up with Guttom Ingeson, Inge's illegitimate son. The coexistence of the two kings gave momentum to the development of inner factions in the Birkebeiner ranks. Skule Bordson is said in Hokonasaga Hokonasoner to have discussed with the Birkebeiner leaders what should happen with the crown if King Inge died. He volunteered himself to take the kingdom after his brother, although he also considered the option of crowning Guttorm Ingeson, Knut Hokonson, the son of Earl Hokon, and last of all, the young Hokon Hokonson. The discussion came to nothing when one of the Birkebeiner made clear that the only lawful heir to the throne was, indeed, the young King Hokon. Some years after, members of the retinue asked King Inge to give Hokon some degree of power, but to no avail. They also tried to incite Hokon to demand a share of his inheritance, offering to take away the king and rally forces around him for a forceful seizure of the throne. In a display of temperance and maturity, King Hokon rejected this offer, preferring to wait in order to receive his inheritance. In the following, we will analyze the first 23 years of the reign of Hokon, from 1217 to 1240. It will be divided, rather arbitrarily, in two. First, we will address the consolidation of King Hokon against his external enemies. With this, we mean the threats to his legitimacy that came from outside the Birkebeiner faction. Second, we will talk about the menace that was growing within the ranks of the leading faction, more precisely, in the difficult relationship between the king and Earl Skula. This criterion, as any other, does not do full justice to the complexity of the first years of King Hokon's rule, as internal and external events influenced each other, but it will allow us to organize a very eventful period in Norwegian history. The Ribung's Rebellion with the death of King Inge Bordson in 1217, the fate of Håkon and Skulle both changed and became intertwined. The relationship was difficult from the onset, as each had what the other one missed. On the one hand, Skulle was the real power inside the Birkebeiner forces. 
He was the leader of the faction and the heir of all of Inga's wealth, which he distributed generously amongst his followers. On the other hand, Falcon had the legitimacy, according to the laws of succession, and the support of the oldest generation in the Birkebeiner, the men who fought alongside King Svere and King Håkon Sverreson. During Håkon's minority, this situation could be dealt with by naming Skulle regent over Norway. But when Håkon reached maturity, the division between him and the Earl grew and became a hindrance to eliminate external threats. Skulle had an independent base of support, as he controlled one-third of the land and redistributed his copious resources to rally people around him. In order to limit the growth of the Earl's power, and with the unity of the faction in mind, the closest friends of the king advised him to betroth Margaret, the only daughter of Earl Skulle, in order to strengthen the alliance with him. As you could imagine, not everyone was satisfied with how the country was pacified after the Bagler recognized Håkon as the legitimate heir of the crown. A major factor for conflict was the integration of the members of the Bagler faction into the aristocracy, and the tension between the interests of the king and the Birkebeiner elites on this matter were often at odds. This situation was also aggravated by the weak effective support that Håkon's authority had in the early years of his reign, when his capacity to intervene and penetrate the networks of the aristocracy depended on the compliance of Roskulle and could also alienate his own base of support, and therefore push people into the court of the earl. The first test to the peace and stability of the kingdom came in 1219. While the betrothal of Håkon and Margret was being celebrated in Bergen, Gudolf of Blackstad, a former Bagler leader who was unsatisfied with the treatment he received from the crown, sent messengers south to find the alleged son of the Bagler king, Erling Stenveg, named Sigurd. This gave rise to the Ribung Rebellion, which would gain force in the following years, and that would feed on the division inside the Birkebeiner ranks between the king and the earl. In the summer of 1220, the king and earl were in Bergen when they received letters from the east begging for them to take care of the rebel uprising. Even though both king and earl went east, in the end it was Earl Skulle who traveled to Viken to claim the dues from the land. Håkonar Saga mentions that the king was in financial problems, having to ask for money in order to provide for the Yule Feast in Bergen. The king sent letters to his stewards demanding money to be sent to the royal treasury, demands that were disregarded, showing the frailty of Håkon's authority. After Earl Skule returned north to Bergen and the Yule Feast passed, it was decided that the Earl should travel to Trondheim to prepare the hosts to march east to Viken to suppress the Ribung uprising, while Håkon would follow by sea with the fleet. The king met the Ribung forces first, in the Bay of Viken, while Earl Skule was in Oslo, preparing the forces to march south. The region used to be the stronghold of the Bagler faction that included the ecclesiastical and secular aristocracies with close ties to the Danish crown. These bonds were still strong in the early years of Håkon's reign, as the attitude of the Bishop of Oslo shows. Bishop Nikolaus, who had previously helped the rebel forces and who had been deprived of two of his ships by the Ribung's leaders, threatened the Earl with a ban when he tried to take one of his ships that was consecrated to St. Halvar in order to chase the rebels. Skulle, despite his close relationship with the clergy, did not hesitate to threaten the bishop, showing that Nikolaus' allegiances were known and that his attitude would not be forgotten if he persisted in helping the enemies of the Birkebeiner. In a naval battle led by the king, the Ribungs were forced to retreat back to Oslo, where they met the Earl's forces and had to flee again. 
In preparation for this, the king laid his forces, cutting the escape route of the rebels east of Oslo. This was a victory for the king, but was far from being a definite one. The following year, the Rebungs were again growing in number. Hokonosaga mentions some of the Bogled leaders defecting from the king's host due to their inconformity with the honors they received from Hokon. Many more clashes between the Birkebeiner and the Ribungs followed that first defeat of the rebel forces. Earl Skulle stayed in Tunsberg over that year to keep the Ribungs in check. The rebel forces were dwindling, and when Skulle was preparing to crush the uprising, Bishop Nicholas tried to mediate between Sigurd, the leader of the Ribungs, and the Earl, so as to form an alliance between them. Earl Skulle agreed to this, and promised Sigurd that he could go to the king asking for a third of the country if he surrendered to him. In this way, the conflict was settled, although Earl Skule was the one who got the most out of this deal, as he was able to profit from the dissatisfaction towards King Håkon. In 1224, Sigurd Ribung escaped from the Earl's court in Nidaros, dressed as a clerk, to Värmland in Sweden, where he had supporters. Skule sent men after him, even hanged someone close to Sigurd that did not want to reveal Sigurd's position, but to no avail. Skulle also punished a clerk who lent some cloaks for Sigurd and his men to leave town in disguise. News of this reached Bishop Gudmund, who later informed the king by letter. Messages were coming and going from the Earl's court to the king, and from Håkon to his retainers in the east to be aware of any suspicious activity. Soon afterwards, the Ribungs were again marching in eastern Norway, capturing the king's men and killing as many Birkebeiner as they could lay their hands on. King Håkon sailed east with the intention of suppressing the rebellion, once and for all, delaying his wedding with Earl Skule's daughter. But when the king reached Viken, the Ribungs escaped again to Värmland. In order to deal with the rebellion, King Håkon asked the Swedish king Erik to prevent the Ribungs from moving into his kingdom. As the Swedish king refused to take any concrete actions against the Ribungs, King Håkon prepared his host to march onto Värmland after Yule of 1225. On his way east, the king stopped in Oslo, giving his men two days to prepare for the march. Bishop Nicholas, again scheming against the king, led a priest who had recently come back from Värmland to know of the king's plans, dispatching him to warn the rebels. As a result of the bishop's plan, the march of King Håkon into Värmland proved to be fruitless. The Ribungs were back in Viken, terrorizing Tunsberg and looking for the king's retainers in the area. It soon became a matter of chasing the Ribungs around eastern Norway, with spies coming and going and bearing little truth in their accounts. The situation was aggravated for King Håkon when messengers arrived from Nidaros. Skule approached the king for not keeping up his word of getting back north after Yule for the wedding with Margret. The earl gave Håkon an ultimatum. The good faith between them would be maintained until Easter, but if Håkon did not come north by then, Skule would consider himself free of any agreement with the king to do as he wanted. In the Ribung camp, Sigurd was informed that the king and his host were stationed close and decided to gather his full strength to attack the Birkebeiner and the free men in the region. The king and the rebels finally met nearby in Oslo, in time for Håkon to sail to Bergen and wed Skule's daughter. After the wedding, the plans to eliminate the Ribungs were resumed, with the earl marching from the north and the king sailing from the west. Again, the king's host faced the rebels in Oslo, winning another victory for the Birkebeiner, but failing to eliminate the Ribungs for good. 
After the battle in Oslo, the king's attention was drawn to a new problem. Peter of Husestad, the king's candidate for the archbishopric, came back with letters from the pope confirming his election. As you might remember, the canons of Nidros and Erlskulle had another candidate in mind, so when the recently confirmed archbishop came into Nidros announcing his nomination, letters were sent to the king asking him to prosecute Peter as a traitor. While Håkon was making arrangements to solve this problem in the north, he received a challenge from Sigurd Ribung to face each other at Eidvolur. The king marched to Eid, while Erlskulle was marching from the north. Skulle met the Ribungs and had a parley with Sigurd, who was allowed to come and go as he pleased. When Håkon reached his destination, the rebels were nowhere to be found. Messengers from the Ribungs came to meet King Håkon, asking to receive part of the country for Sigurd, to which King Håkon replied negatively. Many other proposals were made, but the king rejected each and every one of them. He also sent letters to the earl asking for ships for the king to sail away from Eid. Earl Skule promised to send ships, but delayed fulfilling his promise while allowing the Ribungs to gain time. Sigurd Ribung pushed his claim with the earl and archbishop while gathering his forces and marching into Viken. As an example of how the internal and external fronts combined, Archbishop Peter, who came to power with Håkon's support, and Earl Skule, who was interested in eroding the king's power, tried to mediate between the king and the rebels to find a settled peace. Letters were sent east to the king in order to prevent him from attacking the Ribungs, who were in a precarious situation and could meet their final defeat. The letters from the archbishop and the earl were met with anger from King Håkon, and the levy was raised to march east and fight the rebels. In a rapid change of events, while King Håkon was preparing his host in Hordland, he received a message announcing the death of Sigurd Ribung in Oslo. But as it happened many times before, especially with the Bagler, the fact that a faction was leaderless did not necessarily mean that it was defeated. The king sent letters to Knut Håkonsson, the son of Earl Håkon Galen, offering him a good deal if he did not join the disbanding rebels. Unfortunately, the king's missive arrived too late, as the Ribungs had already obtained Knut's support, and he had accepted the offer to become the rebels' leader and be named king. In military terms, the Ribungs under Knut presented little opposition to the Birkebeiner forces and were repeatedly defeated and routed back to the wooded areas in the east. King Håkon offered his kinsman Knut peace many times, and according to Håkon Asaga, he considered these offers very carefully, but the Ribungs managed to isolate him, preventing Knut from making any deal. Knut's leadership would prove to be the last for the Ribungs, as they were finally defeated in 1227. Knut was rehabilitated thanks to his kinship with the king, and married the second daughter of Earl Skule, receiving many honors from Håkon. The Situation in the Tributary Lands In 1217, when Håkon ascended to the throne and Skule became regent and earl, the partition of Norway was decided. Skule originally claimed half of the land and revenues, and after intense negotiations, he accepted a different kind of deal, better suited to his ambitions. It was decided then that the earl should have a third of Norway, instead of a half, but that he should have the whole of the tributary lands, at that time formed by the Hebrides, Pharaohs, Orkney, and Man. 
This new deal offered Skule the opportunity to increase his dominions by directing the strategic decisions of the Norwegian crown to expanding its control over the North Atlantic, an ambition shared by King Håkon, as we will see. Håkonar saga Håkonarsonar tells us that in the first year of Håkon's reign, a conflict broke between a group of Norwegian merchants and the leader of one of the most powerful families in Iceland, the Altaverjar. Simon de Jonsson, whose father was recognized as a kinsman of the Norwegian kings, seized three hundreds of Othmaul, a woolen fabric used as a means of exchange, from the Norwegians, arguing that his son Pautl disappeared the year before in Stad, Norway. The conflict continued the following year, when some men, including the great Icelandic historian and poet Snorri Stutlason, came to Bergen bearing news of the retaliation of the Norwegians on the people of Otti. The Norwegians took the lives of Ormar Jonsson, brother of Saimundur, Ormar's son, and one priest. In 1220, while the king and earl were in Bergen, news arrived from Iceland telling of Björn Thorvaldsson's attack against a Norwegian man in retaliation for the assassination of Ormar Jonsson, to whose daughter Björn was married. Earl Skule planned to launch a naval invasion of Iceland, but Snorri Stotason and other Icelanders who were at the court appealed to Dagfinn, one of the closest advisors of King Håkon, asking that the attack be aborted. King Håkon interceded, and a different plan was taken. Snorri Stotason should travel to Iceland to try to subdue the land and make it accept the king as its ruler. Håkonar saga mentions that Snorri sent the earl, not the king, his son Jon, probably as a hostage while he was commissioned to incorporate Iceland into the Norwegian realm, although Snorri is said to have taken poorly to the task at hand. That same summer, Björn Thorvaldsson was killed as part of the feud between the Ottaverjar and the Norwegians in Iceland. News of the unrest in Iceland kept coming in the following years, as in 1222, when a galley came with Bishop Gvudmundur, bearing news of Sigvatur Stutlason's doings against the clergy. In the following years, the king's attention was devoted to the Ribung's rebellion, once it was defeated, new conflicts appeared in the tributary lands. In 1228, Archbishop Peter died, and Earl Skule traveled south to Denmark to meet with King Valdemar. A woman named Ingebjörg, married with one of Håkon's kinsmen, claimed that her son was Earl Skule's. The Earl recognized his paternity, and Peter, his name, became his legitimate heir. This presented a new problem for King Håkon, as Skule would press for his son to inherit control over a third of Norway after him. In the meantime, problems arose in the Southern Isles, Orkney, where some of the king's retainers were fighting against the Scots, while others were considering changing sides and breaking their allegiance with Håkon. The king designated one of his retainers, Ospak, to rule the land, and a host was prepared in Bergen to accompany him to his kingdom. News arrived from Man, where Olav, another retainer of King Håkon, had to flee before a Scottish lord launched an attack on the island. Ospak travelled first to Orkney, and from there south to Islay, in Scotland, where three brothers, also retainers of the Norwegian king, were scheming to deprive Håkon of control over the earldom. However, Ospak died shortly after, and Olav took over the leadership of all the Norwegians against the Scots. The Norwegians had a successful campaign, managing to retain control over the earldom, and then sailed back to the king, who was then sitting in Bergen. In the year 1230, Archbishop Ture, who had replaced Peter the year before, died, 
and Sigurd became the new archbishop and was consecrated in Rome. More problems came from Orkney, as the Earl Jon Haraldsson had a quarrel with Snaikatl Gutnason, who claimed to be the heir of the former earl and saint Rugdvaldur. Snaikatl formed an alliance with some of the earl's retainers and eventually attacked the earl's lodgings and killed him. The two factions decided to settle the dispute the following year, going to King Håkon for arbitration. A meeting was arranged in Bergen, where those responsible for the earl's death were imprisoned and later hanged. The remaining Orcadians, Earl Jon's kinsmen, died in their trip back, either as a consequence of bad weather conditions in their travel, or because of a sickness while they were staying with Earl Skulle in Trondheim. In 1234, and through to 1235, the king had a disagreement with the Bishop of Hamar over an island which was given away by the Bogler king Inge. As the king felt that the cession of the island was unlawful, given that Inge was not a legitimate king, it should be returned to the crown. The bishop sent letters north, to the archbishop and earl, and was advised to travel out of the country to ask for the intervention of the pope. That same year, Stutta Sigvatsson returned from a trip to Rome and met with the king. Håkon asked Stutla how much it would cost to subdue Iceland, and Stutla offered himself to work on behalf of the king to achieve that. The king accepted, with the condition that it would be done without bloodshed. Upon returning to Iceland, Stutla found out that Óreike Snorrason, the son of Snorri Stuttason, had attacked Stutla's men in Iceland while he was gone. Stutla and his father Sigvatur decided to march against Snorri to recover the losses, and would have ended in much manslaughter if Thorther Stuttason, brother of Snorri and Sigvatur, would not have come in between them. After this, Snorri fled away, and Stutla took control of his farm at Reykolt and all of Snorri's possessions. Stutla also marched to the west fjords after Óreikja, forcing Snorri's son to go abroad. Soon it became clear that Stutla was not trying to fulfill his promise to King Håkon, and that the unification of Iceland under the command of the king would come by means of violence if he was allowed to keep going. In 1236, Óreikja Snorrason arrived in Bergen, reporting of Stutla's activity in Iceland. Soon, many more Icelanders would come to the king escaping from the civil strife in Iceland, or trying to obtain the king's favor to intervene. In 1238, according to Håkon saga, Snorri Stutlason, Thorle Kakale, Thorleivr of Garðr, and Olavr Kvitaskald were in Trondheim, in the court of Skulle. The king asked them to stay in Norway until he had decided what role they should have in Iceland, as news had reached the court that the Stutlungar were defeated by Gissur Thorvaldsson and Kolbein the Young but Skulle gave Snorri and Óreike permission to leave, and as Snorri was the king's retainer, he was declared a traitor to the king. In the next episodes, we will see the ramifications of these events as we continue with the reign of King Håkon Håkonsson and his conflicts to establish himself as the rightful ruler of Norway. We will shift our attention from the external threats to the king's authority to the dangers that were within the ruling faction, in episode 3, we will see the rise and fall of Skula Bordson and the final consolidation of King Håkon's power and authority as the only king in the country.
The Norse Files is written by Helen Lesse Jakobson, Ulle Albert Rening Nordby, and Julian Vage. Coordinated by Vegar Sohus, produced and mixed by Anders Bibov Ulsen at Pösrein Studio, and narrated by me, Patrick Frugia.